Uh, this will be like, I always hold something. It's like okay. nervous. I'm going to twitch in some way. So uh, <laughs> this, this helps. It's usually a pen. Um, so this class, as I see it, is rounding out a two-year project uh, that I had hoped would be um, one of the various ways that we might try to help the church uh, deepen its roots, uh, particularly, uh, as I kind of see things, um, as a relativism and a suspicion of Christianity uh, is, is increasing within uh, the culture at large. As I, um, I'm in my ninth year now teaching at Lipscomb, and I'm seeing this, this escalating trend uh, where young people who've grown up in church their whole lives, um, they, they don't know the basics of Christian belief. And I'm not speaking about Otter Creek Youth Group right now. I don't know that uh, group, but just in general. This is what I'm seeing among my college students, and it's getting uh, more and more pronounced. They don't know the basics of Christian belief, uh, nor uh, could they explain why those basics matter. And what's been really weird for me about this, and particularly troubling for me about this trend, um, is that it has this kind of, I don't know the better language, but it's trickling up. You think of most things maybe going down, but uh, it's not just 20-year-olds being 20-year-olds. It wouldn't be so weird if it was just among college students, but I'm also seeing this in my generation as well, this this trend toward a kind of uh, relativism. Um, It's not something, I was talking to uh, an elder about this um, on Wednesday, uh, it's not something that clearly exists on the surface. It's not an easy thing to just point to and say, you know, here's exactly... Uh, what I'm talking about, because it doesn't show up with an explicit denial of Christian faith. It doesn't show up in an outright rejection of the fundamentals of Christian teaching. It's more subtle, Uh, but if you start to look for it, you might begin to see it, particularly in the culture at large, but I sense that, uh, well, if we live in a culture, we're not immune to it, and so we need to, uh, to be mindful of it. In case you're wondering, I'm not talking about some concern I have that we're becoming less Church of Christ. That's, that's not uh, something I'm worried about. Um, or, nor am I talking about how we might be becoming more progressive in our politics. That is not my concern in this. Uh, I'm more worried about us, um, uh, the church at large, um, shifting in some ways from what uh, C.S. Lewis might call mere Christianity. So how might this trend reveal itself, to kind of give you a sense of where you see uh, this kind of bubble up since it's not so uh, explicit. So here are a few ways um, that I see uh, this kind of unearthed, where uh, it gets revealed. Uh, Speaking to people about how they make uh, ethical decisions. The default that I'm sensing, not only from my college students, but it seems as though for many, uh, 40 and below, when you ask them uh, how they might navigate some ethical decision, right and wrong, the, um, the default is not some authority outside of oneself, like Scripture. The default instead is how I feel. I just feel that. Uh, and this is not a way of saying that Christians don't pay attention to their feelings. The shift is that how I feel is now the primary authority in the conversation. And that, in and of itself, reveals a shift away from Christianity that's always had an authority in God and how God has revealed himself through 
scripture and to uh, relativism, where the individual and the individual's feelings is the authority. It's relativism, not Christianity. And, um, and you find it when you ask these kinds of questions. Another place that I see it show up uh, is in a kind of nonchalance about sin. So uh, this, this general vibe that we don't need forgiveness. We don't need rescue. We're already good people. We just need to do a little bit better. Uh, but there is no guilt and no slavery to sin uh, for which we need forgiveness or freedom. Another place that I see this show up, remember, it's not about this explicit denial, outright rejection. It's these little things that show me that there is something happening kind of under the surface that makes me a little anxious. And I'm prone to anxiety, so maybe it's just me, but I don't think so. Another place this shows up is a distaste. You'll notice this kind of distaste. I'm saying that word weird. I uh, dislike for uh, a dislike for claiming that Christianity is the truth, capital T truth. And uh, along with that, to claim that other religions, not that they're 100% wrong, but where they disagree with Christian teaching, that they are false. Even to say something like truth and falsehood, for many is like, whoa, that's intolerant. And, and this reveals, again, something happening under the surface uh, where we have become uncomfortable claiming some things are true and some things are false. And that is where this relativism seeps in and begins uh, to kind of shift the ground under our feet. So why um, am I doing this class and how does this fit into this two-year project? So over the last year and a half, part of my goal, and I'm hoping, uh, I don't want to speak for Matt and Lauren here, um, but why uh, I invited them into this and wanted to do what we've done over the last year and a half, where we went over the biblical plot line, Genesis through Revelation, looking at major themes, how things tie together, and we went line by line through the Apostles' Creed, uh, not because we're turning Catholic, but because the Apostles' Creed uh, represents something that churches across the centuries, across denominations, and across cultures have said, yeah, these are our essentials. Uh, we went through there, uh, through those kinds of things to be um, uh, more deeply rooted in the basics. And not only to, to sink our roots a little deeper, but also to see why those roots matter. Uh, what we give up uh, if we lose some of these essentials. Uh, I'm walking, I'm teaching biblical ethics for the first time to my um, to college students. And one of the, the things that I am trying to instill in them, as we look at different ethical theories, uh, we, we describe an ethical system, and then I say, why might this be appealing? And so if we're talking about relativism, they're like, well, it sounds tolerant, blah, 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 all these kind of great things about it. But then we move into, but what strings are attached? Uh, and that second order kind of question, what strings are attached to this, is something that goes undiscussed, but there are uh, some serious strings attached to leaving some of these essentials of Christian faith. Uh, and um, hopefully, if you were in those classes, uh, you, have that, you share that conviction. Perhaps, I'm suspecting many of you shared it before, and maybe some of you uh, discovered what was there. Um, if not, or if you didn't listen to those, I would invite you to go back and listen to those. Um, 
because I think the biblical storyline, the basic theology we get in something like the Apostles' Creed, supports a beautiful and compelling framework that offers real good news to us and to our world. And after we spent a year doing that, we tried uh, to, um, or I tried to get practical and uh, entered into discussing difficult issues and this kind of painful but honest attempt to imagine uh, how we might, if we take these essentials of Christian faith seriously, uh, how we might then navigate difficult issues like war or um, a particularly hot topic today, something like gay marriage or transgenderism, uh, or even the pastoral issues we're facing like uh, women in ministry, what that looks like to navigate that well. So how does this, this class then, my fourth uh, in this uh, two-year thing, how does this fit in? Well, this is to me something like um, a practical weekly rhythm that reminds us of where we're rooted. We can't spend every semester talking about difficult issues or we'll start to think that uh, all Christianity is about is, is the um, controversy. Uh, we need space for something like what the, uh, the wisdom is behind the liturgy. Liturgy is not magic. It can be done in such a mindless, rote way that it leaves the heart unaffected. But it also has the potential um, in its structure uh, for exposing us to a breadth of Scripture, a psalm, Old Testament, a gospel, a letter, uh, so that we are getting a breadth of Scripture. We will also do some Bible teaching so that we will get some depth as well. Uh, we will confess the Apostles' Creed as a reminder, as a community. These are our essentials. Uh, if we find that we are giving these up uh, or that these are challenged, we know, no, we can't. We might need to be reminded why, uh, but at least we might have some sort of red flag, some sort of signal go off uh, when these are challenged. These are truths that we hold to, and uh, that which disagrees is not true. And we confess our sins uh, because none of us are perfect. If I said there are three, at the beginning of this, a few telltale signs of a moving into relativism, um, what the liturgy can offer, for instance, is a reminder when we confess sins that sin is not something we take lightly. And uh, when there's this move to everyone can decide their own truth, the creed is a reminder, no, there are some truths that we see as uh, essential. Um, and as we're trying to navigate ethical decisions, we're, we remember that we are rooted in this great story that began in creation, that takes seriously the brokenness of sin and the redemption of Christ and the hope of restoration to come. So that's where we're going. That's why we're doing what we're doing in here. Uh, so let's bring Matt up, and, uh, and he will uh, talk to us a little bit about Psalm 15, and then um, read that to us and lead us in a confession of sin. Thanks, Thanks Josh, for letting me be involved again. I think this is going to be an interesting season. This is a kind of an experimental class. Just as a disclaimer, it's not going to feel maybe exactly like the ones Josh has put together before, but it's it's intimately connected with those classes. Um, if you're familiar with Vespers, anybody understand? If you can, this is going to be a season where what we do in here is related to what we do in Vespers, which is our Wednesday night um, contemplative service. 
This is, I guess this is also a shameless plug for Vespers if you, if you find it interesting. But what's really important, I think, um, is that this semester we're focusing on what the term liturgy means as a concept and why it matters. And it might be useful just to have as a simple definition of a really complicated term in your heads. When you hear liturgy, just think practice. A, a liturgy is a practice, a way of doing things. And it's a disciplined way of doing things, which is why we call it a liturgy. Um, it's not random. It's, it tends to be relatively fixed, but it's fixed because it's also a discipline. So when you hear the term liturgy, think, think a disciplined practice or a practiced discipline. Psalm 15 belongs, many scholars think, to a liturgy. It's a psalm that, that begins with a question and then gives an answer. And many scholars think that perhaps in the temple days, this particular psalm played a role in going to temple. That when you went to the temple, you were asked the question, you gave the answer, and then you went in to worship. And the question it asks is, who's good enough to worship God? And the answer explains what righteousness means in very concrete, specific terms. Let me, yeah, let me just read it. Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart, who do not slander with their tongue and who do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord who stand by their oath even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest, and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. In my heart of hearts, when I read that psalm, it's so simple. The question it makes me ask myself is, oh no, what do I do now? Because I know I should be those things. And I'm all too conscious that I don't do those things. Part of what we want to do next is to practice a prayer of confession. Um, I'll lead us in that prayer. It's on your sheet. There's nothing particularly special about this form of confession, except that it's easy to do together, if confession is ever easy. So if you would now, let's pray this prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name forever. So we confess, having heard the psalm, uh, following this typical practice. This comes from 
this confession is part of the, um, the daily uh, office morning prayer. Uh, if you're familiar with it, it's, um, you find this maybe uh, Anglican Church might practice this. Uh, a recognition of an ongoing need to confess. I think it's beautifully worded. Uh, the question that Matt um, already is leading us to see, or, or, or something he's getting us to address, is maybe our need for something like confession. I drive uh, down Franklin Road um, home every day, and I drive past the Unitarian Church, and uh, I always, it's like just great um, representation of uh, heresy. Um, that's, that's, on that, uh, that's on that sign. According to that church sign, I've seen some ridiculous things from a Christian perspective. Um, uh, I saw um, on the way home that wholeness is our true nature. And I thought, from a Christian perspective, that is false. We are broken. We are only whole because of the nature of Jesus and His willingness to unite Himself with us in our brokenness. As we listen to the prophet Micah, we remember that this is not, this is not just a word spoken to those people back then, but it continues to speak to us today if we will attend to it. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised? What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him? And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the savings, saving acts of the Lord? As we're hearing this a couple thousand years later, in light of Christ, we might add, that we might remember what God has done for us in Bethlehem, and Jerusalem, and on Golgotha. So, verse 6, And our response, With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. If we pause there for a moment, we can read verses 6 through 7. What shall I come before the Lord? As a true account of where we stand before our Creator and Redeemer. With what can we bring to Him that is not already His to begin with? For them, can sacrifices somehow put God in our debt or fix things alone? No. It's like C.S. Lewis's um, uh, illustration in Mere Christianity of a boy who comes to his father and asks his father for sixpence. And his father gives him sixpence and the boy goes away and buys his father a present and returns and gives the present to his father. And the father delights in it 
but he is six pence none the richer for the transaction. Which is a way of saying we can only give back to God what was his to begin with. What shall we bring to him? Sacrifices and bowls and rivers of oil? They were already his to begin with. When we recognize our position, we realize that we come before him and we can only ask for mercy. We can only ask for grace. We cannot repay him. We cannot put him in our debt. We, recognizing our transgressions, cannot do something to tilt the balance, for we can only return what is his to begin with. So having received grace and mercy, what do we do? Verse 8, He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. When we realize that our true nature is brokenness that has been made whole by the grace of God as displayed in Christ, that our response is not complacency, but having received that gift, we seek then to live out of that gratefulness, to take the gift for what it is. We've been, given, we've been blessed as humans to be in relationship with God and one another, And if that is part of the gift to be in relationship with God and one another, then the proper response is to live out that gift by acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Randall, if you'll lead us. Corinthians 1, 18-31 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded miraculous signs, and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of, this, of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that one so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Jesus Christ who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in God. Thanks, David. David made a snide, uh, snarky text this morning about uh, the part about scholars in there, that he might uh, call me out on that. Um, So we read in Micah 6, prior to this, what, O human, is required of you, but to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Only one human has done this perfectly, so we confess. Only one man's life was wholly characterized as acting justly. The one who never lied, who never misused his power, who never hurt the innocent. Only one human has loved mercy all the way. The suffering servant the washer of feet, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And only one has walked in perfect humility before God, the one who did not consider equality with God something to cling to, but who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is the Logos, the one Paul in this reading twice refers to as Quote, the wisdom of God. And yet, as Paul diagnoses the cultures around him, the culture of the Jewish leadership and of the larger Greco-Roman world, he sees that wisdom, wisdom in the flesh that dwelt among us, he sees that wisdom has been mistaken for foolishness. That the cross, which is for us the defining symbol of full humanity, of acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, is a stumbling block rather than a cornerstone. And so as we hear Paul's words to the Corinthians, we also hear these as words to ourselves. Will we stumble over the cross? Will we mistake the cruciform life as foolish or impractical? Or will we build our lives upon the foundation of true wisdom, on Christ crucified. The one who Paul reminds us is, quote, the source of our life and the power of God, the wisdom of God. Yeah. From Matthew 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Sorry. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes are um, complicated. Uh, they're simple in their format, but understanding how to interpret them uh, is not always clear. Is this um, meant to be prescriptive? Go and be this way. Is that how we read this? You should be poor in spirit. You should mourn. Uh, I don't think, although there are people who disagree with me, I don't think that these are meant to say, go and be poor in spirit, go and mourn. I think instead something else is going on here, particularly when we look at the literary structure of the Beatitudes. Notice the parallel in verses 3 and 10. Kind of the beginning of this short Beatitude and the end of these short Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of God. And then the final of these short Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of God. Notice how both of these, at the beginning and end, have the same because, the for. For theirs is the kingdom of God. I think, ultimately, what the Beatitudes are, are getting at uh, is not uh, simply a general disposition of poverty of spirit or mourning. Uh, but it's, it's rather capturing... Um, with that um, parallel there, that those poor in spirit uh, are often those who are poor in spirit uh, because, as you see in verse 10, the parallel, they have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. They have been seeking and pursuing and doing the good in a world that has gone wrong. Uh, and in a broken world where you pursue the good, where you love others, uh, sometimes that leads to pain and hardship and suffering. So the call is not to go and mourn for mourning's sake, but the call is to pursue righteousness. And when we do that, in a broken world, sometimes what we find is a byproduct is mourning. But rejoice and be glad, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is happening in chapter 5 in Matthew. Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry, and as he calls them uh, to embrace the way of righteousness, we see that, this, that he will walk the path of righteousness. And as he does so, there are times as he pursues righteousness that he finds himself poor in spirit, brokenhearted by what's going on around him, saddened at the loss uh, that happens when sin and death have their way. Where he mourns, where he is meek, where he is merciful and pure in heart and a peacemaker. And yet they treat him the way the prophets were treated. But as he speaks this word, 
to the crowds around him, he will then bid them to come and follow the way of the cross. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, this isn't uh, as though this is going to show up in your bank account. You know this. We're not a health and wealth gospel kind of people. Sometimes this gets emotionalized. Some translations say happy, which isn't bad, but we tend to psychologize that as though it's just this maybe temporary emotion. I think a better translation that captures what's going on here is something like, it will go well with you. It will go well with you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. It will go well, even if it might not seem like it now, for you will be comforted. He bids us to follow this path, the path where it will go well for us at some point. Sometimes we sense that now, and sometimes we await it in the future. But this path of pursuing righteousness, of peacemaking, of purity of heart, sounds a lot like what Micah called the people to earlier. A path of acting justly, of loving mercy, and walking humbly before God. And as Matt comes up here in a moment, after we sing the doxology, and we confess the Apostles' Creed to one another, we remember why we know that this is the path of wisdom and not the path of foolishness. Why the path of justice and mercy and humility is the right path because we know who God the Creator is. We know who Jesus is and that He is not just a good Gandhi kind of character, but that He was God incarnate and that He overcame sin and death and gives us hope and the assurance that this is the path to follow. And we confess our belief in the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do what we couldn't do on our own. And when we confess belief in the church, it's not saying we confess belief in the Roman Catholic Church, but Catholic means universal, that we join with people around the world who are saying, yes, this is the truth, and this is where the path we are going to follow. So let us sing the doxology, praising God for what He's done, and then we will confess our faith. Praise God from recite the creed together. Remember, this is what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
Apparently Matt didn't want to do the prayer or the calling. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> you do it. They, they've heard enough of me. Uh, I said it's an experiment. Sorry. <laughs> we want to end with a collect. And a collect, when it's used as a noun, we have collect as a verb, but it's a collect. It's a prayer for everybody. It's a collective prayer offered on our behalf. And the name collect reminds us that this is for us all. Again, this is an experiment. I'm one prayer ahead of myself. <laughs> Before we do the collect, we want to do the Lord's Prayer together. So let's do that now. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We're practicing. And now, for the collect, which is a prayer offered on behalf of, of all of us by the one who prays. And for today, this is our collect. Pray with me. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things, both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of your people, and in our time grant us your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. At the bottom of that is the readings that we'll be doing next week, if you want to read ahead and look at that. I usually won't have the longer opening at the beginning, so we'll have time for some Q&A uh, during other classes, so we kind of have that Bible class feel uh, to go with this. If you're interested in being a reader um, as we do this and participating, then um, let me know, because I think the more participation we get, uh, the better. Yeah, and this is a class different from Josh's earlier classes, which felt more like classes, where you come and receive instruction, and you think about ideas. This class, a class in liturgy, is, is, a, is a practice class. The point is not to sit and listen to Josh so much as it is to do these things together every Sunday, over and over again. Um, because as you know, practice is what makes us, if not perfect, of course, it, it makes us better. And so this is a different kind of a Sunday class where we'll do things. The point is to, is to do these things this way for this season. If that helps any, in terms of encouraging you to come back or not. <laughs> Are there questions or comments? Matt, I was just thinking how perfectly this is going along with Awaken. If you are doing part of that, this is just such a good adjunct to that. I would encourage people that have not opened their packet yet to get involved in that. Well, and, you know, and I think you referred to David's snide comment about scholars. You know, knowledge is one thing. And knowing the Bible is one thing. Living the life is a completely different thing. And that's what, I, that's what we mean by practice. So how do you go about embodying what you do? Awaken is a good example of a practice that we've decided for this season to put ourselves to. It involves fasting. It involves deliberate, intentional prayer. Um, in its own way, it's a kind of a, a liturgy, so to speak. That's one kind of liturgy. We're doing a more traditional kind, but they all fit together perfectly. It's all about mm -hmm. trying to live a more practiced. Mm, that's not right. 
It's about trying to live a more disciplined life through practice. A rhythm. A rhythm. Yeah, yeah, the rhythms are good. Thanks. Uh, a music teacher told me practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Oh, that's so true. Nice. Yeah. I'm going to rename the, or redescribe the class. That's good. Yeah. That's what I try to tell my students when I give them quizzes. You know, the, the act of practicing remembering is how you learn. Right? One test that you ace doesn't teach you much. It's 15 quizzes where you miss a few every week. It's how you actually learn. And I think the same is true with the liturgy. Um, doing church once doesn't help you live a much better life. Doing it every day is a practice. Good coach Corbin, baseball coach here in town, he uh, doesn't call his practices, he calls them training sessions. Yeah. I think that's another good mindset. Yeah, that's that's why there's going to be repetition in this. Is that uh, we're strengthening those muscles. We're, we're um, yeah, we're training. So that's if the culture is shifting like I, I see it, uh, then we need to train appropriately. You remember learning multiplication tables? <laughs> remember how much fun that was, not? <laughs> but now you can do it in your checkbook. I mean, now you can do it. Even if you're, quote, not good at math, all that practice is how you learn it. And these are, this is much more difficult to learn than multiplication tables. How to live a good life in a broken world, especially if you're a broken person. Other comments, other questions? I would just encourage everybody to go listen to the class that Josh and Matt put on over the last like, three semesters or four or whatever. Yeah, thanks. Is this the first time in here for anybody to, to come to this twenty one class? Yeah. Well, good. Can you tell them when that started? Because it'll be hard to yeah, find. The, the first one is called um, The Dramatic Logic of Scripture. So it goes The Dramatic Logic of Scripture, The Dramatic Logic of Orthodoxy. And then neither fundamentalism nor liberalism is the, the three series in that order. Nothing with politics. Huh? Nothing, Nothing with politics. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank y'all. Thank y'all for being willing to try it out. So. Yeah. <laughs>